Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah. Hi everyone! Thanks for being here, uh, and w- let's let's give another round of applause for Ed. No, no applause. <laughs> Thanks for coming out and missing the Carrie, pa- the Katy Perry. Wow, my my pain meds have kicked in. <laughs> it's gonna be a good night, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> Ask me anything. Um, Want to know about Marvel? Whatever. Yeah, we're getting into it. Uh, first of all, let's talk about Fatal. You guys have all read this, right? <laughs> Let's talk about Fatel. Uh, it's so good. So good job. Thank you. That's my only question. That not... <laughs> um, where You're really it... good at this. We talked about... <laughs> it's been a while. You had questions for Vince Gilligan. I heard <laughs> you were like, well, so... Bring Bad, Breaking Bad's pretty great. Do you want to talk about Breaking Bad? Yeah, let's talk about Breaking Bad. <laughs> okay. Um, we, we talked about this a little bit uh, when last we met, but Fatal is co- sort of the uh, culmination of a lot of things that you've been interested in and have researched in the past 15 years, 20 years? 20 years, yeah. Yeah, talk about that a little bit and where this uh, story came from and, and how it came to be. Well, part of it was trying to figure out a way to do something different with noir where I wanted to to take you know, reality and add like an extra layer onto it. And, um, I had 12 years ago when Sean Phillips and I were finishing, or I guess not that long ago, 10 years ago when we were finishing sleeper, I was working on this idea for a huge thing that would span the length of time. Apparently I was, I was, it was, it was a very ambitious phase. I was looking at things like why the last man and going, I want to do something that could go 95 (laughs) issues. And what kind of a story was that? It was this aborted story. Kind of like Highlander, <laughs> but good. Uh-huh. Joan of Arc was going to be in it. <laughs> it, it. It had a lot of, it was about like immortality as an idea, kind of, um, which is why I say Highlander because of the Queen song. Um, who wants to live forever? Who wants? Um, all right. But, uh, but it was sort of looking at various uh, archetypes throughout history. Like, you know, there's always some crazy magician or there's always some <laughs> immortal hero who can't get killed, like Gilgamesh and Ulysses. And you look at these people and what was the question? <laughs> so, so you were working on this uh, immortality project, yeah. dealing with very... This seems like a vast very project. very not and- Ed Brubaker kind of thing was what it came down to was... I couldn't figure out a way to wrap my hand, my arms around that story. It was hmm. so big. And I also, every time I'd sit down and start trying to noodle through it, it felt like I was trying to be like Neil Gaiman or somebody else. Do you, and do you like those things? I like a lot of stuff. I mean, I like, I like, you know, I mean, you and I just argued about Tolkien yesterday, so. There was no argument. It's, I don't, it, I'm not into it. You're not going to win me over. Well, okay. That's not really an <laughs> argument. Then. You're right. You and I just disagreed. We had a difference of opinion. We had a difference of opinion yeah, yeah, yeah. about Tolkien. And I was so right. yeah, I like you know I like the best in almost any genre. You know, <laughs> well, so 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 this kind of heady story, which was you know spanning, it would have been a hundred issues. You weren't ready to tackle that. No. So I put that, does, okay. that I put that aside, and then 
figured out what I really want to do was just do crime stories, and that's where Sean and I ended up doing Criminal. Um, and then, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and then over over time, like certain elements of the other thing just kept nagging at me, and one of them was the idea of the femme fatale as like an immortal archetype. And I just kept thinking, is this is this something that exists, or is this something that you kind of came to in putting I together pieces? To. Yeah, I just wanted to. I, I was looking at like archetypes of fiction and trying to figure out how to personalize them, kind of, or make them make them people. And the femme fatale in noir stories, the femme fatales in history of like pulp fiction started out as like adventurers, like Indiana Jones types, but a girl or, or like a deadly woman. Like what? And then can you think of any? Of them? Uh, one of our things, we had an article about it by okay. my friend Jess, who's like an expert in that stuff. But um, during the sort of noir film days, like the femme fatale became the sort of seductive woman who makes the man do the wrong thing always. And I felt like she had become a plot device as opposed to a person. Mm -hmm. And I really, I kept coming back to that and trying to figure out, is there a way to make the femme fatale your like sympathetic lead in a story? And then I'd also, you know, been wanting to do something with some supernatural elements to it. And, you know, had researched a lot of stuff about, you know, weird, satanic culture in the 60s and 70s and and stuff like that and wanted to sort of find a way to, to mix that all together and the real genesis was when I was trying to figure out how to crack the story and I thought well what if in Double Indemnity the reason that that Barbara Stanwyck needed uh, the guy from My Three Sons <laughs> to um, to save her from you her husband. You mean the Shaggy DA. <laughs> yes exactly. Is it Hugh Beaubon? No <laughs> that's Leave it to Beaver's dad. Um but uh, when, when uh, if she needed him to save her from her husband because her husband was going to make her have the devil's baby or something, like, what if Rosemary's baby was, like, a noir was what I was thinking. And I was like, oh, maybe that's a way in. Like, someone who needs to be saved for, like, real reasons, like, because someone's going to sacrifice them to Cthulhu. Well, what's, you know? what's really... <laughs> Which you would need a lifeline at that point, I'm thinking. Or what's a hell, a hell what's interesting, though, is... That being the jumping off point for you or the entry into the story, when we look at this first collection, that's not what this is about. No. You know, it's it doesn't it's not about cults in the sixties and seventies. It's mostly about the Charlton heroes. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Let's not get into it. Not our audience. <laughs> um but it, you know, I mean I know you get to that stuff because yeah. I've read the next issue, but uh so so you had to find clearly a different way into telling this story. Yeah. That begins with these other characters. Yeah. Uh, you know, it wouldn't occur to me even to say that the Fatal is the lead in the story. Yeah, so no, that's that's very line. true. Um I wanted that that was part of it was she's she's the through line really, but it is like an ensemble piece and part of it is tracking her through time and all the people that she comes into contact with. She's like a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, while she's not a plot device, she sort of is. <laughs> but she is still she's a person. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think you still yeah, definitely no, I, feel for her. Yeah, no, I mean, she's the only really well-rounded character in it because everyone else, once they get around her, they cease, like, being able to really function as a human. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, it, it was a... I, I knew I wanted to do the different time periods in the story, so and I knew with the first arc I really need to set everything up. Mm -hmm. So it seemed really like you know a no-brainer to do a noir story set in the fifties, right. you know, in San Francisco, and you know, so 
I use that as really the sort of the setup arc, and then the the really crazy weird shit starts happening in issue six, yep. as you've seen. Yes. So. Um, but even these characters, while you are using archetypes, these are not, you know, it's not the detective we've seen before. It's not the newspaper man we've seen before. Tell me about approaching these other characters who surround uh, the Fatale. Um, well, I try to do a thing this time where every time I was writing about a character, I sort of tried to get in their head and make them the sympathetic person in the, in the, in the piece for just their chapter. And partly that was inspired a little bit by... Um, your favorite show, Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> but in the books, I, I read the first Game of Thrones book, and what I thought was really interesting was that each character was sort of a narrator in a way, but third person. Like you'd get to this chapter, and it would all be about Arya or about you know one of the other characters, um, and stuff would happen in between chapters, like, and you would hear about it. Like as something that wasn't, and they're like, well, when am I going to see that? Oh, you're never going to see it. And I kind of liked that. I liked the baldiness of just following these these narrators. So I thought I wanted to sort of try to tackle that. It seemed like a good way to try to do a, a, a thing with a big sprawling cast, mm -hmm. really, because I tend to write too much narration, and I wanted to be able to keep doing that without having to put this, you know, when you're doing first-person narration, you can only follow one character, so... Um, it was interesting too that you know these narrators. Um, I forget it. It's not a good question. That's not. Uh, nice. Let's. <laughs> uh, but so, like the corrupt cop, like yeah. like the corrupt cop who seems like the bad guy at first in the in the yeah. story, you start to feel more sympathy for him throughout the the issues. I think as you see that he's like dying of cancer and you know, mm -hmm. like that he's this sort of tortured weird guy and you know. I mean, I, I like that each little character can give you, like, a little splinter view on on Josephine, too. Mm -hmm. so. And it also, it fills in the backstory in in a very interesting way. I mean, you talk about things happening sort of off screen or off yeah. stage, but how do you reconcile that with a comic book where things kind of have to happen yeah. stage. Yeah, that is true. Well, that's what flashbacks are for. <laughs> but, <laughs> Which I, but I like being able to show like a splinter of, uh, I'm going to use the word splinter all night apparently, um, just like a, a fragment of a flashback. And you're never going to see the rest of that story. You're never going to find out what happened to them during World War II. You're going to get little bits and pieces of a thing, but you're never going to get that whole story. You know, you're going to have to use your own imagination to figure out, well, what the hell were they doing in Bulgaria in 1944? Like, obviously something. And this is something you know? you've kind of played with in varying degrees in other stuff you've written, this allusion to the past or getting maybe an image. Yeah. But I think you, you've kind of haven't splintered it quite as much as you have. In, no, this in is hell. this is, you know, a crazy amount of sprawling <laughs> nonsense. Yeah, I'm I'm just like hoping I can pull it all together by the end. Let's talk <laughs> about that. Uh, cuz you mentioned yesterday that you could see this going on and on. I mean, do you Yeah. There is obviously a story that you're telling, but you've even in these first 6 or 7 issues, you've introduced so much world to yeah. play in. Uh, tell me about that, how, how that is for you, and uh, is there you know, a chance you're going to chase these down? I, it's, it's definitely a chance. <laughs> um, I, you know, I keep sort of, sort of circling on it. Uh, like, I set it up 
I've been kicking myself for starting it in modern times because then we have a guy that we keep cutting back to that's in modern times, so we know eventually that these two people will meet and there'll be a story about them. And I'm thinking, why, why? Well, how, how long can I stretch that out? I, I guess I could just kill that guy at the end of an issue. And people will be like, what the fuck is going on here? Why did you make that choice to bookend with uh, that contemporary story? Um, well, initially it was only going to be 12 issues. Mm -hmm. And the first four were going to be the 50s, and the second four were going to be the 70s, and then the last four were going to be modern times. And so I thought, well, you know, we'll have this... I wanted to set it up in modern times to sort of set the sweep of history mm -hmm. into the story of like, oh, this, because how, how, you know, you meet Joe in 1955 and she's just who she is. It's like, if you haven't met her 70 years in the future and she looks exactly the same, you don't really, sure. you know, unless I want to draw it out really, you know. Um, so that was, that was kind of part of it was to, to help set the tone and also to, to just really imply that there's a huge amount of story to be uncovered in mm. this in this sort of mystery. Have you found I yourself like that. have you found yourself going down avenues that you didn't expect in the storytelling? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have this huge notebook uh, that I've been writing all my ideas down, and I'm not being able to get to a lot of them. And and um, yeah, I had no idea what was going to happen in issue five when I was like writing issue four. I had like a bunch of notions of where it would go, but then when I started writing. Issue five, I was like, I need a cool location, and then I was like, oh, the Cliff House, and then I, and then I suddenly that whole scene appeared to me. I was like, oh, great. So that's yeah. insane that you didn't know what was coming. Well, I knew there had to be an end. That there had to be a big like fight of some sort. Yeah, it's a comic book. <laughs> yeah, uh, but so this is this there would is be kind sex, of <laughs> violence. Sure, it's a noir. Tentacles. Uh, but this leads me to you know sort of a bigger question about how. Yeah. <laughs> Someone finally got the weirdness of that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> uh, I've moved on. Right. Uh, how how Let these me comics are a, put sort of a type of manga to you. <laughs> uh, it leads me to ask about how these comics are put together uh, and how it differs maybe from. Oh yeah. It's different from working for one of the major companies. Uh, what kind of autonomy are you given? Did you have to pitch this story to anyone? No. Really? <laughs> no. So how um, did you get to do it? Who do you think you are? Uh, I, I, I'm just someone who's really lucky. <laughs> um, what happened was uh, I was at dinner with Robert Kirkman uh, after I was down here visiting and went by the Walking Dead writer's room for a while, mm -hmm. and then we went out to dinner, and he was basically just like, come on, you've been promising you'd bring a book to Image, and, you know, I, I can do a better Robert Kirkman than this. <laughs> come on, man, you've been promising you're going to bring a book to Image. And, <laughs> and uh, so I basically was, he's like, what's your next book? And I'm like, well, it's going to be this thing called Fatal and blah, blah, blah. And, and he said, why don't you do that at Image? And I'm like, well, what will you guys give us? So <laughs> it was like, we just negotiated over dinner, like what the terms would be, and then I was like, "All right, well, let me see, you know, what I can do." And were you thinking you know, this would be another uh, icon project? Uh, well, technically, my contract at the time, you know, I had to. There was negotiation back and forth between the companies, basically. Oh, okay. So I had to, you know, let them sort of offer on it as well because my my deal at the time. But okay. um, but yeah, it ended up being that Image was willing to do things that that uh, other places weren't. Hmm. Um, because Image really wanted to get us over there, and so they were willing to do, you know, like five pages in the catalog and like posters, and you know, they really pushed the hell out of it. Yeah. So, 
which you know I'm really relieved that that we ended up doing it that way. But yeah, no, I didn't have to like pitch it to anybody or anything. And and literally, I mean, there's no way we could do this book at like even Vertigo or something like the way that we do it. Uh, why couldn't it? you even do it at well, Vertigo? How does that stuff work? Because often last issue was different in that I was finished with the whole script before Sean started drawing it because he was working on a uh, French graphic novel in between books um, and. But generally, I'm often sending Sean anywhere from four to eight pages at a time. And they just go directly to him. And he letters, pencils, and inks and sends it directly to our colorist who, you know, colors the whole book, you know, like a, a week or two before it goes to print. And there's no editorial process involved there. I mean, you could not do a book where you sent four pages to the artist, like your writer, your editors. I, I have done, you know, five to ten pages in, in at a time working on Marvel books when you're really crunched on deadline. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, just, you know, I, I never have... Sean doesn't know what's coming next ever. <laughs> like, he doesn't want to. I've offered to tell him. But yeah, I was going to ask yeah. about that collaboration. I mean, you guys have been working together for quite a while now. Yeah, 13 years. Damn. Yeah. Um, how did, no, he's how did never you... wanted to know what's coming next. He'll, I'll <laughs> tell him what the gist of the idea is for the book. Like, the next one's about blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Like, for Criminal, I remember when we got to Bad Night, I'm like, yeah, the next one's going to be about the cartoonist guy. And he's like, okay. Like, that's, you know, he just, he's wow. like the first reader, basically. Yeah. And, you know, luckily he he appears to like the job because we've been doing it for 13 years. Um, How did you guys start working together? Maybe um, this is well trod, but I don't know. We he uh, Sean actually came in and inked something. Uh, my first thing I did at Vertigo is this thing called Scene of the Crime, mm -hmm. and uh, Michael Lark didn't like his own inking after the first issue, and so he he asked Sean to ink it. And Sean and I at some point communicated during that, and he let me know he had been a fan of my own work when I was a cartoonist. I used oh, wow. to do sort of semi-autobiographical comics about being a slacker loser. <laughs> um, uh, and so he was like, oh, we should do something together someday. And I thought, oh, yeah, sure, that's ever going to happen. And then I wrote a thing for um, DC called Gotham Noir that was like a, a Batman Elseworlds. Mm -hmm. And it was going to be drawn no it was i don't think we had an artist in mind actually i sold it to them and then we just started kicking ideas around and the editor said well what about john phillips and i was like oh okay and then we did that together and we really liked working together and then like a year later i was working on a project at wildstorm uh called sleeper and i had just sort of sold them the pitch on it and sean had been doing uh wildcats there at the time and so I asked the editor, I was like, well, what do you think of Sean? And then we sent Sean the, like, two-page pitch for it, and he did character sketches. And, you know, pretty much ever since then, we've just been working together. Like, we've had a few minor breaks here and there where he's gone off and worked on other shit, but mm -hmm. mostly his only shit is my shit. And have <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he'd be proud to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> he won't listen to and, this. And have you guys... <laughs> Have He's no interest pretty in me. Much, uh, well, clearly, he doesn't care what's yeah. happening in the next issue. Yeah, he's like, whatever, just I, stuff I'm to actually draw curious people. about that. And may, yeah, well, maybe maybe you can answer it, maybe not. But like, what what is he getting out of this? Because he's uh, he must be somewhat. <laughs> sure. He gets paid. He uh, must be somewhat invested in the well, story, but he can't I, be. You know, well, he's a comic. I mean, he he was a fan of my writing before we started working together. So mm -hmm. I think he's, you know gets to work with me. <laughs> um, no, I think he, I think he must like, you know, the stuff that I give him to draw sure. ma mainly is like the kind of, he and I have the same kind of taste in the stories that we want to tell, I think, 
which are you know a lot of stories with a lot of shadows and people standing around and less. yeah let's let's talk about those stories for a minute because you said yeah. earlier that that kind of epic story that you had in your head that you were working on was not a brubaker story yeah uh so what is what what defines it do you think <sighs> low sales um <laughs> uh you know i i tend to write stories about people that have fucked up shit in their past because <laughs> i have a lot of fucked up shit in my past i think you know people were, were saying my stuff was noir before i was actually even trying to write stuff that was noir i think um what was the what was it that people were responding to do you think Boy. Was it the? I mean, there's more than just fucked up shit in someone's past. There's I don't know. A, a terseness I, I, of know, language. I don't know what people like about what I do, honestly. Like, but, but why do you think they were calling it noir? I don't care if they um, liked it or not. Uh, I think just just the tone of what I do, the way you know, it's a lot of you know, a lot of people in the shadows, a lot of people making bad decisions. That then the whole story spins out of kind of this one bad decision and. You know, I went through, well, I, I made a lot of bad decisions when I was young around, like, drugs and crime and stuff like that. And I think I'm just kind of, I have I have recurring nightmares to this day still. I think I'm claustrophobic because of a few days I had to spend in the felony tank when I was 18. So yeah. I'm, I still, to this day, will, like, wake up from nightmares that I'm, like, in prison. And, um, you know, I did some stuff that, that could have gotten me, you know, I could have had a whole different life if I hadn't gotten lucky and gotten out of some stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I just am kind of drawn to that kind of thing, like people who made mistakes, but they're still sort of good people or they think they are even while they're like murdering people, mm -hmm. you know. Well, let's let's talk about that. People too. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. That's my next project. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to... Kid murderers are people too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that in in relation to uh, Fatal. Are these good people? What's going on in this story? How do you there feel are about no these good people? people. Are you <laughs> can can you as a writer judge the characters then? You know, I I think so because I you know I've had this argument with Greg Rucka before. Well, not really an argument. It's more of a difference of opinion. <laughs> he likes Tolkien. He likes Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, we both do. Um, no, uh, like he does much meaner shit to his characters than I do. And I realize, like, I'm, I have kind of a weak stomach for stuff. Like I've never had a female character in one of my stories get raped just because it seems like distasteful. And, and also it's just Does like, it seem distasteful? It seems distasteful. <laughs> I'm not a hundred percent sure. It feels like it would be a bad thing. Um, but no, honestly, like I just I don't have the stomach for that to to be. I and you want to be mean to your characters to some degree because like that's one of the tenets of writing good fiction is put your characters in places they don't want to be and have awful shit happen to them sure. and have them figure out how they're going to survive it. And you know that's where a lot of my writing comes from is like, well, what's the worst thing that could happen today? But I just I can't go too far on some of this stuff. I'm kind of a pussy about it. I think I'm not I'm not willing to be as mean to some of my to some of my characters as, as other writers are. You well, know. and it sounds like, I mean, you, you can't be judging them too harshly. Cause no, you, I, you I get inside have their affection heads. For them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I made this, the Kingpin sympathetic and daredevil when I was working <laughs> on him. He's like a mass murderer. <laughs> I was like, but he needs love. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how, how do you approach a character like that? Who's been around forever and has, was basically turned into a monster right in the run before you. 
Uh, he was not. I just had him move to Spain and like live near the ocean and <laughs> try to get away from it all. Like everybody wants to escape something, you know. I mean, that's even kind the of, kingpin. Yeah, that's kind of. If you, I mean, getting back to it, that's kind of what all my writing is about. And I think that's the beauty of. I think that's part of what I'm drawn to noir about. Like, is that it's all about people wanting to escape something, like either escape being accused of murder or escape, <laughs> you know, like. I'm I'm pretending to be a completely different person. I you know like stealing someone's identity, like that kind of like I, I love all those kind of stories. So I think that's so that's easy for me to imagine like the kingpin having gone through everything that he's done and still consider himself you know a good person at heart, or or maybe not a good person but like a person, you know, because I don't mm -hmm. think anyone's really good or bad except for Hitler. Yeah. Hitler was bad. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. yeah, it's good to get that on the record, yeah. though. Just FYI, Hitler, Manson, bad people. Do you want to talk about Marvel? <laughs> no. <laughs> do you want to talk about Marvel? My pain meds have kicked in. Yeah, sure. What do you want to know? <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> how, how are we doing these days? How are we doing? I, I told you this yesterday. I look forward to your Captain America uh, every. Uh, I buy the collection every time. <laughs> Someone uh, didn't read my interview. I enjoy it. <laughs> I just, I just am look, writing my last issue of that right now. Let's talk about so, that. All right. uh, why, why leave? I mean, it's been nine years, right? Or it will be nine years. It'll be eight years. Well, it seems longer. It seems like nine. <laughs> it seems like 15. Yeah. No. Um, honestly, uh, it was just time to go. I'm kind of, you know, I, I said this a couple weeks ago um, when I was uh, being interviewed that I just felt like, and I, I talked to people at Marvel about this for the last several months, that I just felt like... I'd kind of, I never imagined I would do superhero comics as long as I did. Mm -hmm. And when I came into comics, I came in from alternative comics and I wrote a mystery comic at Vertigo and Mike Carlin said, well, if you can write a mystery, you can write Batman. And I thought, <laughs> oh, you're full of it. And then I watched all these Bruce Tim and Paul Dini Batman cartoons and I was like, well, these are amazing. So I was like, well, maybe I could. And I started pitching ideas to Batman and, and an editor there. <laughs> to Batman? Yeah. <laughs> What what they well, don't tell you is, is that Batman actually runs the Bat Office. Really? Yes, it's the Bat Office at DC is run out of the Bat Cave. <laughs> sure. Yeah, which is how DC has been able to keep going all this time. It's a grant from the Wayne Foundation. Sure. It certainly isn't sales. So you, you, so you sort of <laughs> I mean, other than Watchmen, which has sold millions. We're not gonna even. I was not even going to bring up Watchmen. Why um, not? <laughs> But but you sort of stumbled into superheroes via you know crime yeah. then Batman. Then I was like, I hadn't actually read superhero comics for about ten years before I did uh, Batman. And I, I remember I was writing my first issue of Batman, and I, and I went into the comic store in San Francisco, and I was like, what good has been going on in superhero comics mm -hmm. since you know the last ten years? And they just gave me like the Authority and Planetary, and basically was were like, here this stuff. And so I was reading it, and I was like, wow, this is kind of amazing, actually. Like, oh, you can do all sorts of crazy stuff. And I thought, well, the storytelling has really come a long way. And so, you know, but the minute I got into Batman, even Greg Rucka and I started talking, we were immediately like trying to figure out how we could write these things without Batman sure. in them. <laughs> you know, we were like, let's can we just write about the cops? And you know, it took us three years to to convince them to do Gotham Central. So. And by then, the way we convinced them was that Powers had happened and was a huge hit. And we were like, hey, see, someone else is doing it. And we could do ours with Batman. People would care. Yeah. 
<laughs> Power's actually sold better. <laughs> it was that was an odd thing doing a, a, a book like that at DC because it wasn't Vertigo and it wasn't really fully DC and they did not know how to promote it. The head of promotions at DC, the month that Gotham Central was being solicited, told me, this is my favorite comic we've published in 10 years. And I was like, oh, awesome. Are we getting the cover of previews? Oh, no, that's going to Aquaman. I was like, okay. Like, everybody there loved it. <laughs> did, did they leave you guys alone on it because they oh, yeah. didn't know quite what it was? No, they, well, they left us alone on the stuff that they knew what it was even. I mean, okay. there's not a lot of hands-on I, well, there is now at DC, I think, from from everything I've heard from friends. But but uh, my experience at both DC and Marvel has been pretty hands off. I mean, the worst thing that ever happened to me at DC was like my editor was on jury duty, and Dan DiDio hired like a new artist for Catwoman without consulting anybody, and it was like ah, that's that's what we call getting the DO'd. I don't work there anymore, so whatever. <laughs> what was the best thing that happened to you there? Uh, working with Michael Lark and Greg Rucka, meeting Sean Phillips and working with him. You know, I got a lot of breaks there. I, I have really no complaints other than that one thing. Um, you know, I, I, I was treated really well there. I got paid to write, you know, and I got to write things that, that were a lot of fun. And, you know, Gotham Central I, is more popular now than when Greg and I were doing it. <laughs> so it's kind of weird and it's, it's you know they put out like deluxe editions of it and you know it's been through multiple printings of various formats of paperbacks and hardbacks and so you know I had good experiences there and you know I learned a lot about you know writing under deadline and and you know I, I look back at the first comics I did for DC and I just cringe at how many words are in every word balloon. It's just like, oh, God, follow the rules, Brubaker. 25 words a balloon. Wait, Max. are those the rules? Something like that, yeah. There's, Tell me some more I rules. Have, do you want rules for <laughs> yeah, comic book Yeah, we're writing our first comic book. Okay. So I'd like to know some. Well, what you want to do, this is, this is very technical for those of you technical people. The, the trick to comic book writing uh, for dialogue is you want to write, write a line of dialogue that when you're reading it in your head, it sounds like something someone says, but if you were to say it out loud, you'd realize like, Oh, that's kind of abbreviated. That's, or it's, it, it needs to read like dialogue while not actually being what people would say, because if, if it was someone, what someone would say, the word balloon is going to be way too big. Basically my, the way I, I tricked myself into it was I indent like the first tab and then I write like the name of the character. And then, if, if I can't fit the dialogue all into one line, I'll, I'll allow myself to go two or three words into the next line. But other, otherwise, wow. like, it, it, you know, you labor over it to try to, like, get those lines exactly right so that you're using as few words as possible. Are there, it's almost like poetry in a weird way where you're trying to say a lot with very little, yeah. you know. I, I mean, that's the thing going from comics to screenwriting or, or like, TV writing Man, it's so freeing to be able to just, yeah, whatever, like monologue. Aaron Sorkin could not survive in comics. <laughs> well, Brian Bendis has gotten away say. with it. So. Uh, are, there, are there writers, uh, comic book writers, that you think do that really well who you would hold up as a model for that kind of dialogue writing specifically? Uh, for making it seem like dialogue? Where it, well, Bendis actually writes a lot more like like a Mammoth or a Sorkin or something where there's a ton of word balloons on the page. I think he's about the only guy who's made that style work because mm -hmm. he does his own balloon placement. He used to do his own lettering, so he actually knew 
how to structure these things as conversations. Whereas I can't do that. I, I tried it once as a parody of him, <laughs> just to see what it would look like in what an issue of Daredevil. I, I had these characters in Daredevil that were. Uh, one of the things I really loved about Frank Miller's Daredevil was Turk and Grotto, the sidekick characters. Anybody remember Frank Miller's Daredevil? Two people. Wow. <laughs> um, but they had like comic relief, and I wanted some comic relief. And I and I was uh, friends with Patton Oswalt and Brian Pesain, and I knew they were big comic book nerds. And so I thought <laughs> I will put them in the comic. And one of them will talk like a Bendis character, and one of them will talk like a Frank Miller character. Awesome. So it's all like short one-word yeah. things, and the other one just goes on and on and on and on <laughs> and on. And that was that was Patton's character was like the neurotic talking all the time. And so I, I tried to do that, and I could never fit like as many word balloons into a panel as Brian does. I don't know how it's like some mystery skill he has because no one else can do it. Um, but as far as like dialogue, right? I mean, Brian Vaughn is amazing at it. You know, Jim McCann sitting here, he's really good at it. Um, prove it. Prove it. Yeah, write some Quick. dialogue. <laughs> you have four seconds. He points um, to the store. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone just handed you a pen and paper. Awesome. Uh, it's it's hard to to think off the top of my. Head. I like I think Rucka uh, writes really good yeah. dialogue. I mean it's it's a it's a it's a it's a weird one. It's you know the guys who are really successful. You look at their stuff and you realize they're doing it kind of. Yeah. You know. Uh, let's talk about some of the other rules you discovered along okay. the way. I'm endlessly fascinated by this. <laughs> this I mean this is really a, it's a foreign language. Yeah. To us. We're having to learn a whole new. Well, yeah, that's way of coming writing. from screenwriting or yeah. even the, theater writing. Like you have to isolate each moment in comics. That was a lot of screenwriters I know who've come over to write comics will call me and they'll be like, how do you do this? Like, and I'm like, what are you talking about? You write this, you write scenes. Like, no, but you have to isolate each section. And like, like, I can't just go, he walks down the street. I have to be like, he's standing at the corner of blah, blah, blah. And there's a car. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you kind of have to do that. So it's kind of, it's almost like being a storyboarder or a director at the same time as, as being a writer. So uh, you just kind of learn that stuff. I mean, one of the one of the tricks that that I always recommend to people is either, depending on on what the scene is, like if it's an action scene, like write all the panel descriptions first, and then go back in and figure out what you need people to say. And if it's like a dialogue scene, just write all the dialogue, and then figure out, okay, I need you know five to seven panels on this page, and what happens, you know, where are the breaks? And sometimes you'll end up jettisoning a bunch of dialogue because you're like, oh, I don't have room for this. Well, what's important? And hmm. so it's a, it's, a, it's a process. Comic book writing sort of makes you, the, when you do it right, it's bulletproof, you know, because you have to get each scene right before you move on to the next one. And I think it's something that's really helped me with, like, screenwriting because I tend to go over, you know, when I sit down the next morning to start working on a screenplay again, I go over everything I wrote the day before and just sort of streamline it and cut it and redo stuff and go, oh, that line of dialogue is terrible. And, you know, so I'll just sit there for a couple hours doing that before I start moving forward. And I just kind of, I assume every scene needs to be completely bulletproof. It, it slows me down a lot because, you know, a lot of screenwriters just plow through this shit and then go, oh, I'll fix it all in the second draft. But for me, when I'm like, whatever I'm turning in, I want it to be as tight as humanly possible. And then it's like, well, maybe we don't need a second draft. <laughs> that, I'm sure that'll happen. Yeah, that's totally. They yeah. always, they should. Now, Leonardo DiCaprio time. was like, this is perfect. <laughs> Let's talk a minute about the, um, that transition to other kinds of writing. I mean, you say it is freeing in some ways. Yeah. Um, it's different. Yeah. What, what are some of the challenges as far as approaching story? <sighs> well, 
you know, I like to turn things in five pages at a time. So I'm sure that's, a, that's a, a different thing. I, you know, I come partly from a school of having just done so much comics that I tend to write without a net a little bit. Like I have outlines and stuff, but I don't follow them all the time. And like I did a TV pilot for Fox like a year and a half ago. And the hardest part for me wasn't the pitch or selling the show or, or even writing the script. The hardest part was the outlining. Because I had to do these scene-by-scene scene things, which were boring the hell out of me. And you have to stick to them. And you yeah. have to stick to them once you get them done. Well, you don't have to once you get into the rewrites. You can like sure. start jettisoning shit that didn't work. <laughs> but you make them say that it didn't work. You figure out a way to... like. It's When I used to be a, uh, an artist and I would do um, like illustration work, the, the odd times that I, that I did it, we had the, the big nose rule when you like knew an art director. Because art directors will always ask for a change, even if your drawing is exactly what they wanted. So you'd do something that was just like you'd draw someone's hand really weird or big because <laughs> they'd have that one thing to go, oh, this is great, except that hand is weird, man. Can you fix nice. that hand? So, you know, that you got to figure out how to do that in your Game TV, it. in your pilot scripts too. You'd be like, you know, throw in, throw in that one scene where you're just like, wait, why are they at La Brea Tar Pits? <laughs> can, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Can you, can you talk about that experience with that pilot at all? Sure. Um, that was, uh, for 20th century Fox, um, my, at the time manager, uh, had, uh, there was a writer that they had an overall with who was interested in one of my books. And so these guys at 20th started looking at some of my material and they wanted to option one of my books to try to make a TV show out of it. And I said, no, um, because I was too attached to it and I just didn't think it would go forward and I, they didn't want me to write it. And then, uh, this guy, Mark Ambrose, who was like a junior executive there was a big fan of mine. And he said, well, why don't we bring in Ed and see if he's got any like original ideas. And so my manager and I went out to breakfast and he's like, so do you have any TV ideas? And so I kicked around like three or four ideas with him over breakfast. And then we went in. How did, let me interrupt for one sec. How did you dif differentiate those TV ideas from a comic idea? Or did you have to? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, well, I, my feeling is kind of uh, each idea needs to work for the medium that it's supposed to be in. And I watch a ton of TV. I'm like, a, my, a TV was my babysitter because my mom was an alcoholic. I love, I love television as a medium. I think, you know, when I, I think back to, you know, happy times in my life, a lot of it is like sitting there watching like the Mary Tyler Moore show with my dad or something and... You know, I, I just, you know, I think TV is great for long form entertainment. I love serialized fiction, you know, and I, and TV can do things that, you know, I mean, comics does similar things to TV and that it's serialized, but, you know, you can have a lot of scenes in a room in TV and you don't want to do that in a comic. You want to keep changing the location. You want more interesting visuals, you, you know, and you've only got, you know, 25 pages an issue if you're lucky. Um, so, yeah, this was, you know, ideas I had specifically for, like, a, you know, the TV show that I pitched was a thing that I had, like, a couple seasons figured out and some single episode ideas, and it was going to be, a, like, a hybrid. This was the year where all the networks claimed that they were trying to sort of meet cable in the middle somewhere. They were going to do a bunch of stuff that was going to be more cable-like. Um, and that was... Uh, the the show that I was up against that they ended up filming instead of my pilot at the end was Breakout Kings, which they didn't pick up anyway, and then got sold to cable and did a couple seasons on A&E. 
Um, but they had made the pilot so they could do that. Um, it's funny because every time I'm talking to the people, I'm working with these guys again uh, this season, and we keep circling around ideas, and and then there's always this moment where I'm like, why can't we just do the one that I sold you guys like a year and a half ago? <laughs> like, like everybody really likes that one. I had lunch with the guy from Fox, who's like, you know, one of the two like main guys there, and he's like, I love that pilot. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but well, they don't like to do that. They don't. I don't know what the deal is. It's weird. That's the one thing that that I didn't like about the process. I really enjoyed like pitching and selling and you know I didn't really love the outlining as much just because it wasn't you know something I was used to um, can you talk and, about what the concept was are you allowed to do that I don't know actually we, let's tell them and we can cut it out am I am I allowed <laughs> Julian yeah. my, my agents are it was it was a uh, it was a it was thing that was um, about a kind of a flip on a procedural where I was trying to figure out a, a new way to do a procedural show and it was about crimes that happen within the, the, the underworld, the criminal underworld, and who solves these crimes. So it was about a corrupt cop who gets hired by like a crime syndicate to solve uh, murder and sort of ends up becoming like the sheriff of the mob was sort of the, the premise. And, and I still think it's a great idea. <laughs> it is. Because, you, you know, you could have your like diehard episode where it's like he has to go to some, you know, meeting with the triad and... And you know, and, and it's at like an underground casino, and a bunch of people invade to rob it, and he's got to get his you know mob princess out in time or whatever. There's there's a lot of things you could do within that world, I thought, and so I I pitched that to 20th, and everybody really liked it, and we developed it, and you know, I sort of learned quickly the the ropes of how to develop a pitch into something you can take into the networks, and then we took it to Fox. And you know, conveniently, uh, Matt Chernus was the head of Fox Drama that year, who I knew through comic books a little bit, and we'd played Xbox games together and been on the phone. And you know, he was like friends with other people I knew, so it was like I'd never actually met him before, but it, you couldn't have walked into a more friendly room. And this was probably the last week of pitch season, and it was my first time going into something like this. And I already had a full-time job writing, so like. And I knew I was going to the friendliest room of all time. And I thought, well, if this doesn't happen, like, this is not going to happen, for one thing. Like, <laughs> I knew for sure I was not going to sell this thing because mm -hmm. it was too much something I actually wanted to do. And I, would, I, I was like, well, this would be a great TV show. No way they're going to buy it. <laughs> so I went in, I pitched it, and Matt made a suggestion. I said, and then the, the cliffhanger ending of the first season is this. And he said, oh, that's great. Why don't we do that at the end of the pilot? And I said, well, buy the show and I'll put it at the end of the pilot. <laughs> and and uh, the producers I was with at 20th said, no one's ever said that before. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's what we're here to do is to make a deal, right? Like, make it easy for them. So I walked out and he basically said, okay, I think I want this, but I got to check a couple things. And you know, we got the phone call while we were actually at ABC waiting to pitch it to ABC the next morning. We had just been brought into the conference room for the pitch and like my producer at 20th kept looking at his phone and waiting for something. He's like, I was really hoping we weren't gonna have, even have to do this pitch and like ABC is never gonna buy this show. And I'm like, oh great, thanks, I'm glad we're here. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then literally they let us in and my manager and the producer's phones just like went off immediately. And they were like, Fox just bought the show. And I was like, awesome, let's leave. And then the door opened and the people from ABC came in and I'm like, what do I do now? Is <laughs> that like a like, four minute pitch? Yeah, it was like the worst pitch of all time. Cause it was like, 
what was funny was they were like, wow, I can't believe Fox let this leave the room. And then <laughs> I was like, yeah, well, they're thinking about it. Like, <laughs> but, but, uh, so it was, it was interesting. And then, you know, it was fun to, it was, it, it was fun because I threw myself into it. And with TV, you write so fast. And it, it was the end of pitch season. So they were already getting scripts that they'd sold, that had been bought in July and August. And they were seeing like, oh, like, so they'd bought, I could sell a procedural late in the game because they'd already gotten scripts for ones and they were like, oh, we're not going to make this, we're not going to make this. So they were still in the market. Like, so a month earlier, I probably wouldn't have been able to sell that show because it would have been, you know, too much like something else they had maybe. So, um, and then they didn't make it and every, but, but, you know, but, but, uh, but the script got around and a lot of people, you know, wanted me to do stuff. So, so you're working on some new stuff. Yeah. Good. Got a couple. We won't talk about things. things. No, we. I. But that's great. They don't exist yet. <laughs> uh, do you guys have questions for Ed? You must. Uh, if you have a question, just come on down here. Uh, celebrity audience, do you guys have questions also? Celebrity audience. <laughs> Ed, I was just wondering, what did you think of the Dark Knight? <laughs> <laughs> the comic or the yeah. movie? Oh, Dark Knight. Oh, um, yeah, uh, I definitely like that one. I like Batman Begins pretty well. Chris Nolan's like my favorite director, so I feel weird because I feel like the Batman movies are his worst movies, actually. And But they're still great. I just, it's like, I love Inception and The Prestige and Memento is like my favorite film ever, so... Um, so I'm kind of harsh on those movies in this weird way, but, um, no, I liked it. It did feel like, you know, there's a scene, uh, I got to go to an early critic screening of that and it was my first IMAX movie ever. And I'm afraid of heights. So that's like a great one to start with. Like the, but there's like the scene when the Joker's in the interrogation booth, I was like, holy shit. Like I practically wrote that scene. And uh, it was nice. De Paul Levitz, who was in charge of DC at the time, actually used to send you money if he thought that you, there were fingerprints of your comics in any of the Warner Brothers movies. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that will happen anymore now <laughs> that he's not there because the check came with an enormously long letter about how they didn't have to do this. It was just they were just they were just being nice, and it had nothing to do with anything you actually did. And but but it was cool because it was like oh cool free money for but but uh, yeah no I did I and I met Chris Nolan a couple years ago and and he clearly like knew who I was and I and I talked to uh, my a friend of mine knows him pretty pretty well and was like oh yeah he really was into Gotham Central so I know he and his brother both read Gotham Central so that was a lot of fun nice. to see. What did you think of Green Lantern? Oh wait, initially uh, the the girl in uh, Dark Knight the. She was Renee Montoya originally, yeah. And then Paul Levitz actually refused to let them have her be Montoya because Montoya would never turn against Gordon. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Like, <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, other questions? Do you want to ask his opinion on other things? He'll give them. Uh, I'm totally high. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> what do I think of... <laughs> this might have been answered already. I just uh, read Dead Enders for the first time recently. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it was awesome. I loved it. But so again, this might have been answered at some point. But how come you never wrote something like that ever again? Because that was great. Yeah, that was great. Why haven't you written something great? That might actually have the best ending for anything I ever wrote. Uh, you know, that was a weird one. In that, that probably was really cool. Thanks. I remember that. 
that I was forgot the, about that. that. Was a Thank book you. That probably uh, of anything I've written had the most sort of editor's hands in it. Not in a bad way necessarily, but in that, like that started with I did a mini series at Vertigo called Scene of the Crime, and then I wanted to do a monthly. And they had just bought 100 bullets, so they didn't want another crime monthly. And I said, well, what are you guys looking for? And Shelly said, well, Karen really wants us to do some kind of a teen love and rockets-y kind of thing. And I thought, well, fuck, I can do that. And, and so it, it initially was going to be a revamp of Swing with Scooter as a post-apocalyptic uh, thing. Because Swing with Scooter is an old, was DC's Archie ripoff, basically. Um, and then they wouldn't let me do that, and so we ended up calling it Dead Enders, and I created a bunch of new characters. Um, but the pitch started as like two pages, and then they kept just being on the fence about it. And by the time it got approved, there was like a 28-page document that outlined like 45 issues of stories or something. And I keep having to go in for these meetings, and I just it started out as just being a story about a bunch of kids, and then they ended up wanting a plot. And and then it ended up with this whole Joseph Campbell hero myth thing that I really wasn't that attached to. But, you know, I flipped through the book when I got my box the other day of of them, and I hadn't looked at that stuff in a decade. And I was reading it, and there's there's five or six issues in there that I think are some of the best stuff I ever wrote. Like, the there's a romance comic issue that was... Uh, and then I think the last issue where the world's all sort of split apart and, and you know, it tells a bunch of short stories about all these characters is, is probably the best ending for anything I've ever written, actually. So um, I guess I just never did anything like that because I felt like too old to write things about young people at that point. Like I was already in my early 30s at that point and, um, and I had really, really, really wanted to do a crime thing, but Brian Azzarello got there like five minutes before me. So, fuck him. <laughs> How do you feel about 100 Bullets? Oh, I love 100 Bullets. Okay. How do you feel about the Avengers movie? Oh, the Avengers movie was, like, a lot of fun. <laughs> no, I really loved it. I went to the premiere, and it was... T- I you know, saw you there. It was awesome. <laughs> I walked out of the theater. Remember, I got yelled at on Twitter that night for saying it was going to be the biggest movie of the year? <laughs> fuck you, Twitter. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Other questions? Speaking of movies, uh, other than once, are the other than the books that you've written, what what book series of comic books would you would you like to write for if you were if you were assigned a feature film screenwriting? Uh, what do you? Oh, what what comic would I want to adapt into a film? Yeah. Ooh, I don't know actually. Um, Including yours, Gotham Central. I would love to do a Gotham Central TV show. Um, not, I mean, we were just ripping off Homicide Life on the Street anyway, but, but, uh, hey, I got to meet Tom Fontana. (laughs) Um, probably Gotham Central. I mean, if I'm going to be like, I I just, I don't have uh, a huge, the only book that I love so much that I want to see if I could get the rights to make it into a movie is this old book called The Far Cry, um, by a guy who used to write episodes of Twilight Zone and stuff, whose name I'm just drawing a blank on right now. He's like one of Dwayne Swierzynski's favorite writers. Um, and that's like about a about a guy who had a nervous breakdown who uh, in the late 40s is asked by a friend to help him research a true crime and he just sort of becomes obsessed with the victim and you know it's exactly right up my alley. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I don't have I don't have that Jones yet, you know. 
so with criminal, with uh-huh. lastly innocent, I think you set the bar super ultra high. And I wanted to know what's kind of next for criminal. Are you going to take <laughs> a break from it and focus on fatal for now? Or I just was curious. Yeah. Well, fatal is going somewhere around 15 or 16 issues as of now. And then, uh, the plan is to go back to criminal after that. But yeah, that did kind of set the bar so high that I almost feel like I don't know if we can go back. <laughs> but I have uh, the plan is for the next criminal story to be uh, Coward's Way Out, which is the the Leo in prison story, um, which is the sequel to the first criminal arc. Um, so, and assuming the movie goes forward, then we will definitely go back and do that sequel. <laughs> oh, celebrity question, Jim McCann. So in your interview and what you've been talking about over the past, I guess, 24 or 48 hours is that, you know, you've run out, not run out, but you've kind of run your own personal limit of superhero stories, which is something that, you know, I know a lot of people have talked about um, and you've been doing noir. What other genre? Is there anything, is there like something that, uh, an itch that you want to scratch? Yeah. I, well, Becky Cloonan and I were talking about doing a, 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 a miniseries of romance comics where I would write all the stories and she would draw them all in different styles. Like each story would be, would be like three issue, three stories per issue, like an old, like Ramita romance comic. I, I've always loved that stuff. I don't read romance novels. I do watch dumb rom-coms, which my wife makes fun of me for watching all the time. By the way, I saw Fuck Buddies, um, but it was called No Strings Attached by the time I saw it. Um, yeah, see? Not good. No, not, not a really great movie. Fuck Buddies was awesome. <laughs> uh, no, I watch, I watch, you know, uh, but it's weird. Romance comics for some reason, because I think I just read them when I was a teenager, like reading Archie comics, you know, and I just blended them in my head with like John Romita's Spider-Man comics that I just like, oh, it's like, this is what happens when he's not Spider-Man is like when Stacy goes on a date with some other dude. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I just have always wanted to do that. I have a big, you know, I, I don't only want to write crime. So yeah, definitely would, I, you know, I like soap opera stuff, you know? <laughs> Not like you, like soap opera. I'm not like I'm not David Sedaris, but <laughs> I don't watch One Life to Live. But but I mean like I mean oh 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 I made Jim cry. <laughs> More Western. Yes. I would like yeah. to read your Western. I would love That'd to do cool. a Western. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I missed the big interview, and you may have already talked about this. But so you're done with Captain America. But what about Bucky? Who's kind of your I'm baby? Keeping up, I'm keeping up. I'm keeping the Winter Soldier. Uh, once Cap 19 is my last issue of Cap, and then after that, Winter Soldier is like my only monthly book for Marvel, and um, as long as that lasts, basically. So keep buying it if you want to keep it around. <laughs> I'm hoping if it's my only book, more people will buy it. <laughs> uh, speaking of all the, those shattered Cap fans. Speaking of other genres, that pulpy stuff in Captain America and Winter Soldier, uh, you know, it it's sort of sideways version of a lot of the noir stuff you know it's kind yeah. of concurrent with it but it's certainly not the same territory is that stuff that you uh, have as an influence as well yeah well um a lot of that stuff is like influences by my by my dad like books he would read or movies he would take us to as a kid um like what kind of things well like john le carre kind of stuff my dad was always reading le carre and and you know any of those spy novels really my dad was uh 
for a while was the head of naval intelligence in Vietnam, and my uncle was in the CIA, and so there's a lot of like that kind of world around in our life. I used to, when my dad was on his deathbed, I, I got uh, as many seasons of NCIS as I could get the DVDs for, so that, and that's all because it was his only show he wanted to watch, and he would just sit there and tell you everything that was wrong. <laughs> so it's an amazing um, gift. That yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, when he was in it, it was called the NIA. It was the uh, Naval Intelligence Service, so it was just NIS. Um, but he was in Vietnam for like three or four years, just basically like being a cop. And, you know, and sort of liaising with uh, his brother, who was like the head of the CIA's uh, Mekong Delta Have area. you pitched that show? That's a good show. Yeah, I don't know. No, it is. <laughs> the Vietnam show. <laughs> Are we ready for Vietnam? Yeah, MASH, you're right. MASH, but it's about the CIA. <laughs> Ed, you've produced your Marvel output to Winter Soldier, not just because of the creative decision, but you said in the Spurgeon interview because you're able to sustain yourself now on your creator-owned work. And a lot of other creators have been talking about how they're stepping back from, from Marvel and DC, like Paolo Rivera yeah. talked about how he worked for 10 years and re retirement is still not really like a thing in his life. I wanted to know, what, what do you think of the lay of the land with respect to the big two economically for creators? Do they have to make things more equitable to keep... There's like a lot of high-profile defections to, to image, like yourself and Morrison and stuff like that. What, just what's your take on all that? You know, like I said in the Spurgeon interview, once you get to a point where you're established in, in the field, you can own your own stuff outright. You know, I mean, it's not easy to, to get to the point where you're selling well enough to, to, you know, quit needing other paychecks, but it does happen, you know, and I, I feel like it's, you know, you have to take a gamble on yourself once in a while and, you know, I, I've made a really good living writing comics for DC and I made a better living writing comics for Marvel and I was treated really well by both of those companies, you know, overall. And it just got to the point where I just didn't have any more stuff I really wanted to do in that field. And the creator owned thing, you know, Fatal taking off so well at image really, really helped me be able to make that decision. But I probably would have just done it anyway just because I can't keep writing comics that I didn't want to write. Like I never wanted to get to a point with Captain America where I was sitting there writing an issue and going like, God, I can't wait to be done with this. And so I, I wanted to leave before that became a thing. Um, I think, you know, I think both of those publishers pay really well. If you know what you're getting into when you're doing it, you know, if you want to write comics, you know, and you want to write superhero comics, there's no reason to write them anywhere but Marvel and DC. None, no one, they're not going to sell anywhere else, for one thing. Um, you know, independent superhero comics generally don't sell that well. Um, so if you want to write that stuff, that's, that's definitely the place to go and do it. But, you know, you got to know going in the history of, of, you know, the way those companies were formed. Uh, you know, what, what I thought was amazing the last six months or so is the amount of talk within the industry about creators' rights and things that none of us ever really talked about anymore because we always assumed these are just settled issues and Marvel and DC both have, you know, creator equity for, you know, if you create new characters for them and, and things like that. So, you, you know, it's not the same, you know, deal that Jack Kirby got or that Steve Ditko got or that Siegel and Schuster got. So you... You know, you know, when people were saying, well, how can you work their 
you know, even though Jack Kirby got screwed over or whatever. And, and it's like, well, you know, that's like saying, how can you work at an auto plant? Because the people who worked there 50 years ago had a shittier deal than you. Like, you know, they, they've seen the error of their ways and they've changed it. So, you know, uh, but it's, you know, I think it comes to a point when you, you get to a point as a creator where you just want to write the stuff you want to write, you know? And I mean, I always kind of wrote the stuff I wanted to write anyway, and it just got to the point where now the stuff I want to write isn't Marvel or DC superheroes, and it happens to be selling well enough that I don't need to figure out a, you know, another path. And also, you know, I have movie and TV deals and stuff, so that really helps. <laughs> but I would do it anyway. <laughs> Um, before we wrap up, we've touched on it a little bit, but uh, what uh, comics are you reading these days? And also, what TV are you watching, and what are you putting your, in your eyes? And Comics, my favorite comics right now, uh, you know, I, I'm not a... Uh, God, there's so many good comics. Um, you can leave Casanova. I know, I'm going to totally leave out yeah. comics because I'm on pain meds. Um, <laughs> Casanova, I really love. Lock and Key is one of my favorite comics by Joe Hill. Um... Did you read it? Mind the Gap is really great. <laughs> I'm like, who's here? <laughs> we can start with that. Huge Scott Pilgrim fan. <laughs> My friend Hope's doing Wrinkle in Time. I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> um, no, Anyone honestly, else here want to plug anything? Anybody, yeah. <laughs> When's uh, the next season of the Guild start? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, comics, what I mostly read creator-owned stuff. Phonogram is one of my favorite oh, books, um, which is about to start again. Um, Profit, I like a lot, that Brandon Graham is writing for Image. Um, it's a crazy sci-fi comic. Um, you know, mostly my stack of stuff when I get at home is, is like, not superhero stuff. I mean, that's part of why I was, like, uh, you know, I'm not... Not, I never wanted to do it for the, as long as I did it. I was just having a lot of fun, and all my friends were doing it, and you know, <laughs> and it was like, oh, we're like we're a bullpen kind of. I mean, Jim was there, like even pre being a professional writer, like we were all this kind of happy club creating a lot of yeah, we were having a lot of fun. So even when I was like years ago thinking, I don't know how long this will last, but it's like, um, so you know, I like Unwritten a lot by Mike mm -hmm. Carey. Um, Boy, I'm leaving a bunch of stuff out, but I have a lot of favorites. Well, we'll follow you on Twitter and find yeah, out some more. Sure. At Brewbaker. Yeah. Whatever uh, Warren Ellis is doing. <laughs> what, what, what are you watching on television? Uh, TV. Uh, right now, I'm really excited. Breaking Bad is coming back sure. in a couple weeks. Louie, I think, comes yeah. back this week, right? In yeah, this a few week. days. Um, I liked Homeland. Yeah, I liked the first season of Homeland. Uh, I watch True Blood, even though I, I sort of don't know why. I just kind of, it's like, I, tell, I watch a lot of TV. It's not great TV, but it's total guilty pleasure TV. It's like, it should say it's a guilty pleasure on the, like, that should be its tagline. Um, uh, what am I? I did watch the first couple episodes of Bunheads. I'm not in love. It's Gilmore 2.0 with dancing. Um, That's what was missing from Gilmore Girls. Yeah, that was, was all the missing dancing. from Gilmore Girls was all the dancing. I saw the Mindy Kaling pilot. And yeah. I, I watched every pilot. And the yeah. shows I'm really looking forward to are uh, okay, Last, this will be out in August, Last by the Resort. Way. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm looking forward to Last Resort. I'm looking forward to the, the Mindy show. Um, the Reba. Yeah, Sandy. <laughs> it's, it's Reba 2.0. <laughs> Malibu Country. <laughs> um, not, I'm not the audience for that. 
Wow, you guys really like. Yeah. What did I think what of else? Newsroom? <laughs> I liked the script for I liked the script for Newsroom better than the episode actually, um, which is weird because normally I I don't. I, Sean Ryan said something on Twitter that his problem with Newsroom was the way it was edited because, like. Uh, the way Sorkin's dialogue works, you don't generally want to cut to people, cut back and forth to people when they're saying their little quippy things. And I think that really did affect it to me. But I'll, I'll, I'm going to give that show, you know, three seasons to get, <laughs> to, to totally suck me in. <laughs> it's Sorkin. You know, I recently watched all of uh, Studio 60 again when I was, like, watching it on my phone at the gym. And, and I got totally sucked into it. the ideal way like, to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on your phone at the Exercycle. It's like 40 uh, minutes. Do you guys want to throw out other titles to him and see what he thinks? No. <laughs> let's, let's, let's I want to see where this goes. Yeah. Uh, please give a round of applause to Ed Brubaker. Now leaving Nerdist.com.